Section 11 of The Book of Famous Sieges. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Book of Famous Sieges by Tudor Jinks. The Siege of Elysia, 52 B.C. About 52 B.C., a year or two after Julius Caesar had made his first expedition into Britain, which, by the way, was a complete failure as a military enterprise, there was a great uprising of the Gauls under their leader, Vercingetorix. In this campaign, the Gauls determined to adopt a new method of warfare. Hitherto, they had tried to withstand the Roman soldiers at every point. Now, under the advice of their able leaders, they resolved to give up the smaller places, which were difficult to defend, and to select two or three of the largest towns, put all their forces within these strongholds, strengthen their fortifications as much as possible, and hold them to the last against the Roman armies. Three strong cities were chosen. The first, Avericum, now Bourges, was taken without much difficulty, but the second, Gergovia, the capital of the Arverni, which was the name of the people over whom Vercingetorix ruled, made so good a resistance that the Gauls were greatly encouraged. Many who had before submitted took up arms and joined Vercingetorix and his forces. Caesar found that the entire nation was in arms against him. The final struggle between the Romans and the Gauls took place around the city Elysia, which was situated upon a hill well surrounded with fortifications and garrisoned with more than a hundred thousand men. This hill was a steep slope on all sides, and in some places it was precipitous. On each side, at the bottom of the hill, ran two rivers. The historian, Frude, tells us that the position was so strong that it could not be taken except by starving out the garrison. The modern town, which is built near the site of the ancient town, is known as Elise St. Rhine. Against this position, Caesar, having joined with his lieutenant Labenius, led his whole force, expecting to blockade the Gauls within the town, to cut off all supplies, to starve them into surrender, and then, having captured the leader of the insurrection together with his whole army, to put an end to the rebellion. Caesar himself, in his history of the campaign, declares that the only way of taking the town was by a blockade. All about the place were hills divided from the town site by the valley rivers. Not only was the fortified place full of Gauls, but a large force was encamped on a plain three miles long to the eastward of the city at the foot of the hills. These men had thrown up an entrenchment and dug a ditch to serve as a first defense against the Romans. Having arrived before the city, Caesar began the siege by throwing up entrenchments intending to surround Elysia upon all sides, and here and there behind this wall he built a number of camps in the Roman fashion, each one really a little fortress. Also, to strengthen the line, the Romans built twenty-three towers, each one holding a strong garrison and guarded by vigilant sentinels. We must not think of these fortresses and walls as being built of masonry. They were constructed of logs of wood, or rather, trunks of trees pinned firmly together by great stakes and banked up by piles of earth. Towers and strongholds were built in the same fashion as log houses, 
except that the walls were usually doubled and filled in with earth and stones rammed tightly so as to strengthen the wooden walls against even the small cannon of the middle ages these defences would have been useless but when neither army possessed any artillery that could do more than throw large stones these walls were really stronger against the enemy than stone walls were against cannon to protect the soldiers who mounted these walls stakes were driven at intervals along the top and branches woven in and out so as to make a thick wickerwork or very coarse basketwork strong enough to stop an arrow a dart or the stones flung by the slingers in order to repulse attacks piles of stones and bits of timber trunks of trees earthenware vessels of water kept hot over fires were made ready along the ramparts to be thrown upon the attacking columns there was little or no difference between the permanent walls of a city with their watchtowers at intervals and the walls built by the romans outside except perhaps that these were of a smaller size having finished the main part of these siege works the fight between gauls and romans began by a cavalry battle between the walls after a doubtful struggle the gauls were put to flight and many of them were slain while trying to make their way through the narrow gates of the camp here the horsemen became confused interfering with one another and the germans who were fighting in alliance with caesar's men were able to slay many of them driving them finally within their camp with great loss many of the gauls when they saw it was impossible to get through the gates slipped from their horses flung themselves into the ditch that surrounded the camp made their way across it and tried to climb up the outside of the breastwork here they were exposed to the darts and arrows and stones flung by the besiegers and many of them perished so great was the confusion that finally the leader of the gauls vercingetorix had to order the great wooden gates to be closed partly to keep the victorious besiegers out and partly to force at least some of the gauls to defend themselves in the plain outside the city during the night that followed this first attack the gauls held a council of war and decided that the only hope of saving themselves was to bring about the arrival of an army of gauls from outside orders were given therefore that all the horsemen should depart from the city secretly make their way through the unfinished works of the romans and then riding each man to his own tribe to call upon every man in gaul capable of bearing arms to advance to the relief of the besieged city the message was that the liberty of all gaul depended upon saving the force shut up in elysia by this means he thought he would be able to raise an army of some eighty thousand men before his provisions were exhausted he calculated that there was enough food to last a month or even longer if he should put the garrison upon reduced rations when the horsemen had departed vercingetorix gave orders that every sort of food should be brought into one place under his own charge and threatened death to anyone who should disobey besides the corn they had cattle and sheep in great numbers that same night he decided it was best to withdraw all his forces inside the walls and to give all his efforts to keeping the romans out of the city of these plans caesar soon learned from prisoners or from deserters and foreseeing that above all he must prevent the calls from obtaining supplies 
he set his soldiers to make a twenty-foot ditch around the whole city and caused all the provisions of the romans to be carried back well beyond the ditch in order that the besieged gauls might not be able by a sudden attack to seize any part of the roman supplies having thus made his provisions safe caesar to provide a defence against the expected army of relief constructed a second fortification around the first so as to surround the whole city with two rings of fortification one to keep the besiegers from getting out the other to protect the romans against the rescuing army of gauls at every eighty feet along this entrenchment he built great wooden towers strongly garrisoned the entrenchments themselves were protected on the outside by two deep ditches and in front of these ditches were great pits in which large trees were set with sharpened branches and beyond these pits were others shallower in the middle of each being a sharpened stake caesar describes in full his method of protecting the entrenchments which seems to show that this method of protecting defences was not well known to the roman people in brief it consisted of a wall two ditches deep pits filled with trees having branches sharpened smaller sloping pits containing sharpened stakes and the space over which were sharp iron spikes set into posts driven into the ground among which the cavalry could not gallop the whole object of fortifications of this kind both ancient and modern is to delay the attack of outsiders if they can be prevented from making a dash up to the fortifications and are forced to pick their way slowly they are kept for a long time under the fire of the defending forces traces of some of these defensive works made by caesar's soldiers have been found in modern times in gaul especially during the time of napoleon the third the emperor was deeply interested in caesar's campaigns he wrote a book about them and set men to work upon the sites of some of his battles and sieges in order to find traces of the old roman works so we have not only caesar's descriptions but even some of the remains of his fortifications to guide us in understanding them there would have been little use in these works of the roman soldiers if they had not possessed something to take the place of modern artillery and firearms in addition to their slingers and their bowmen the romans had the machines for throwing stones and arrows these were of three kinds two being the catapults and scorpions which corresponded to our light artillery these could be used not only upon fortifications but even upon open ground they were little else than great bows set upon a framework a sort of giant bow gun having a flat piece in which great bolts or arrows could be placed and a sort of winch or windlass that would draw back the cord of the bow these were not unlike the other third kind of machine that was used in these sieges but this the ballista or thrower was much larger and heavier and usually hurled great stones these artillery machines were in the charge of a corps of men that went under the name fabri or workmen and corresponded to modern artillerymen and engineers for ordinary siege works such as were used in taking the first of the three strong towns fortified in this campaign the romans made use of a mound similar to that we have spoken of in previous sieges they called this the agar it was built of woods stones and earth 
to a height that would bring the besiegers on a level with the walls of the town they were attacking. To protect the workmen while building the agar, forms of moving breastworks were built of timbers, and even set upon rollers. Behind these the workmen were protected, and gradually built up the agar until it reached the walls. These moving breastworks were of all sizes, from one large enough to protect a few men to an enormous moving tower. Big shields were also used, and now and then breastworks of logs could be thrown up wherever they were needed. Where the walls of the city were low, and the city itself was not upon a high hill, these methods enabled the Romans to approach the walls. But in the siege of Alesia, they could not be used because of the hill upon which the city was built. Consequently, before this place, the siege was really a blockade, an attempt to starve out the garrison rather than to destroy the walls and enter the city. And the fortification toward the open country was, as we have seen, merely to keep the Gauls from making an assault against Caesar's embankments by keeping him for a long time at a distance and under the fire of his artillery. The only part of the city from which there was danger that Vercingetorix could make a sudden rush with a large force was that long plain westward of the city where the cavalry fight had taken place. Across this, Caesar set the Romans to digging a ditch twenty feet wide with perpendicular sides. While this would not keep the Gauls back long, it would prevent their troops from rushing upon the Romans during the building of the main defenses outside of it, since these began nearly a quarter of a mile back of the ditch. Having completed two lines of fortification, fully ten miles in circuit, protected by ditches and stakes and trees as already described, Caesar awaited attacks either from the Gauls within the city or from the great army summoned to their help. The Gauls were doing their best to go to the help of their great leader. Although they did not send all the fighting men of the country, they called upon each of the tribes to send so large a number that when the relieving army set out upon its march for Elysia, it numbered 238,000 strong, of whom 8,000 were horsemen. While this vast host was being gathered, Caesar's men had been riding about the country, gathering up everything that was eatable, so as to support themselves in case they should be forced to sustain a long siege, and the Gauls within the city had been as saving as possible to make their food last until the relieving army should appear. Councils of the chiefs were held, and every desperate proposal considered. They even expelled from the town all who were unable to fight old men, women, and children. These came in pitiful throngs to the Roman fortifications, begging to be taken as slaves, prisoners, anything, if only they could get food. But Caesar posted guards along the lines and left the miserable creatures to starve between the Roman and Gallic walls. These poor wretches were the townsfolk into whose homes the Gallic soldiers had come. But soon after the driving out of these townsfolk, the lookouts upon the Roman and Gallic ramparts suddenly saw a body of Gallic horsemen upon a great hill to the westward of the Romans' lines. And as these came into view and arrayed themselves on the height, they were seen to be followed by a numberless multitude of foot soldiers. These tall, fair-haired warriors wore armor brilliantly colored, tartans, plumes, 
rich cloaks, besides gold ornaments upon their necks, and they were armed with spears, lances, bows, and long swords. At once the Gauls within the town burst into cheers and demanded to be led against the Romans. Vercingetorix had made all ready for the sally, and his troops carried great bundles of wood, baskets of earth for filling up the trenches, and pushed forward breastworks mounted upon rollers to protect them in the attack. Meanwhile, the Romans arrayed themselves along their lines of fortification, both inner and outer, while the Roman cavalry, many of whom were Germans fighting as Caesar's allies, rode forward to meet the Gallic horsemen. The battle of the cavalry lasted during a whole afternoon, but just at sunset, the German cavalry, drawn up in a solid body, put the Gallic cavalry to rout, and then falling upon the archers who were drawn up behind them, cut them down with their swords. It must be remembered that this battle was fought in a great plain in full view of both Gauls and Romans, and that had the Roman force been defeated, an attack from the town would have been made upon their fortifications. But with the flight of the Gallic cavalry, the besieged lost hope and retired once more within their walls. During the whole of the next day, the Gauls were getting ready for a grand attack, and suddenly, at midnight, was heard a terrifying shout as their enormous relieving army advanced down the hill against the Roman ramparts. Now was seen the value of Caesar's preparations, for though both sides suffered from the stones and arrows that were shot in vast numbers through the darkness, for there could be no light except from bonfires or from torches here and there, yet the Gauls were unable to cross the ground that had been so well guarded with sharpened stakes, trees, and pits. Very few of them were able to make their way through these defenses, and these few the Romans repulsed, sending bodies of men at times to one part or another of the wall as they were needed. Neither of the Roman walls was broken, and toward daylight the attack had failed. Just north of Caesar's position, he had been compelled to leave an opening in his line of fortifications. In this opening were posted two legions, about 8,000 men. Having learned of this weak point from the people of the country, the Gauls sent 60,000 men around the hills to attack these less protected legions, while their cavalry pretended to make a strong attack on the Roman lines, and Vercingetorix led his men out also against the near fortifications of the Romans. A general attack followed. Armed with long poles with iron hooks at the end, the Gauls attempted to tear the logs apart. Earth and bundles of branches were thrown into the ditches, and the Romans, fighting against their foes on both sides, were sorely distressed, since the men at each rampart had no means of knowing whether their comrades would be able to keep the enemy from attacking them in the rear. Caesar, on a great height just south of the city, could view the whole scene, sending horsemen with orders directing the reserves wherever they were needed. The fiercest attacks were made upon the two legions in the opening of the line, and upon those who fronted the city against the army of Vercingetorix. Gradually the ditches and pits were being filled up, and the Gauls were able to approach the Roman lines. Caesar sent his best lieutenant, Marshal Labinius, to the point where the attack was most dangerous, and at the foot of the hill where Caesar himself was posted, the attack so nearly succeeded that Caesar had to ride down to the threatened point to hearten his soldiers. 
but the Gauls were driven back everywhere, except where they had attacked the unprotected legions. Calling every man who could be spared, Caesar got together four thousand Romans, and in his crimson cloak, a garment worn by Roman commanders only, he led his men to the attack. Just as they reached the thick of the fight, the Roman or German cavalry appeared to rescue their comrades and drove the Gauls into the very arms of the approaching forces under Caesar. Of the whole sixty thousand men sent to this attack, but a few escaped death or capture. The Gauls were always most fierce in attack, but yielded quickly when discouraged, and the failure of this attempt so disheartened them that during the following night their whole host took to flight, pursued by the Roman and German cavalry who, until morning, were hunting the fugitives and slaying them. Vercingetorix gave up all hope of rescue and nobly offered to yield himself to the Romans in the hopes of gaining terms for the rest. Caesar, seated in state, received the Gallic chieftains, among whom came Vercingetorix, richly dressed and fully armed. Riding in state around his Roman conqueror, he then dismounted at the foot of the throne, laid his sword and armor at Caesar's feet, and yielded himself captive. This brave chieftain deserved a nobler fate than befell him, for after six years' imprisonment in a Roman dungeon, he was paraded in the triumph awarded to Caesar, and then put to death. The heroic defense made by Vercingetorix at Elysia caused the Emperor Napoleon III, who wrote a life of Julius Caesar, and also an elaborate study of ancient artillery, to erect a statue of this brave Gaul at Elise, the modern town that stands on the site of the city that saw Vercingetorix defeated. From this siege, we learn the state of the art of taking cities just at the beginning of the Roman Empire. The next siege is also Roman and shows how the well-disciplined armies of the empire succeeded in attacking one of the greatest strongholds of the old world, when it was defended by a race as brave as themselves, who had every advantage of position, as well as of defenses enormous in strength and especially notable for their skillful arrangement in triple lines. The city of Jerusalem suffered many sieges, but none of them so long contested, so interesting, and so terrible in its cost of lives, as the siege by Titus in the first century of our era, 70 A.D. End of section 11